Dr. Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. I am honored that you're here. This is an interview with Chuck Granada. He is a returning guest to the Paul Leslie Hour, a noted Sinatra historian, author, and producer. Granada has produced a new deluxe reissue of Frank Sinatra's sixth studio album, Sing and Dance with Frank Sinatra. The album was originally released 70 years ago, and this reissue has been created in cooperation with Impec Records and Sony Music's Legacy Recordings. It's been released as both a limited edition vinyl LP and an SACD-CD hybrid. Granada and the team have spared nothing to create an unsurpassed, unprecedented listening experience for audiophiles and Sinatra fans alike, of which I am sure many of you are both. Granada's discourse in this interview you're about to hear includes some history, the art and science of recording, personal reactions, and his lingering curiosities. It's an in-depth look at a milestone recording, something that must be seen and heard to fully appreciate. Very honored to have Chuck Granada returning right here on the Paul Leslie Hour. I should also add there's a video version of this interview which you can access on youtube.com and also from thepaulleslie.com. By the way, you can go to thepaulleslie.com. Up at the top, there's a button that says support the show. Just click there. It only takes a few moments and it makes a world of difference. And now, let's begin the interview with Chuck Granada. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 501 of the Paul Leslie Hour. We have a returning guest with us. Charles L. Granada is an acclaimed Sinatra historian, a producer, an author of several books. He's known to a lot of people in the Sinatra community and to his friends as Chuck Granada. And we're going to be talking about a very important album, and I'm going to hold it up for you. This right here, it's out now on limited edition vinyl and also a format called Super Audio Compact Disc, Sing and Dance with Frank Sinatra, which came out 70 years ago. Chuck Granada has been working on the reissue, and it's now out there in the world. So, Chuck Granada, thank you very much for taking time and talking with us today. To say that it's my pleasure, Paul, would really be an understatement because I so admire and respect everything that you do with your podcast and your broadcasts. And when I listen to your show, I love the level of detail that you get into with your guests. So it's always enlightening and informing for me to hear you. And I always learn something, which is wonderful. So it's my pleasure. And thank you for inviting me to join you today. It's an honor. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for those kind words. I think for anybody who listens to this album, which, by the way, I should say, and you're probably not tired of hearing this, but it sounds wonderful. Thank it's you. Really an incredible listening experience. But it really, really pulled at my imagination. I couldn't help but think about what it must have been like to be a fly on the wall when this album was being recorded? Well, I feel the same way because it is a pivotal recording, both in Sinatra's career and in the history 
of modern sound recording. This album was recorded, and by the way, it was Frank Sinatra's very first fully conceived 10-inch vinyl LP of the 33 RPM record format. So it really was special, but there were a lot of factors that came into play just as they began recording this record in April of 1950, not the least of which was the fact that Frank Sinatra had just suffered a serious case of laryngitis while performing at the Copa Room in New York City and had to rest his voice for four to six weeks right when the sessions were due to begin. So when they actually went to the sessions in April of 1950, Mitch Miller, the producer at Columbia, decided he was going to turn off Frank's vocal mic and just capture the instrumental backings and have Frank come back to the studio in a couple of months when his voice had healed and he felt better. Now, the reason that that was possible was because they were making the transition at that moment from recording on 16-inch lacquer disc to recording on magnetic tape. And that really allowed them so much more flexibility all around in recording. It increased the fidelity. It reduced the noise of, of ticks and pops in the background that you would get with disc recording. And it also allowed them the chance to both edit and overdub. And that's what Mitch was taking advantage of, the fact that he could call Frank back later and have him add his vocal to the existing instrumental tracks. And this was really a brand new thing in 1950. And the other thing that's important to know is that this was a clandestine operation because the musicians union didn't allow for overdubbing. They really didn't want artists to go back in the studio and add to something that they had recorded before because there were all kinds of rules regarding payments and, uh, you know, there were, there were just a lot of complications to this. So they literally went into the studio between September and October of 1950 to do the overdubs under secrecy and lock and key. Mitch Miller told me that he literally had a guard standing by the door outside because if anyone from the musicians union came, they would have shut down the whole operation and they would have gotten a fine and it would have been a big problem for everybody. So the fact that we have these recordings because of all these, you know, extra kind of session situations that arose is really remarkable. Not The other thing, too, that's really incredible to me is that 70 years have passed and these tapes are still as perfect as the day they were recorded in terms of their condition and their sound. So what's it like for somebody like you who is fascinated by recording? When I went back and listened to the first interview, I thought, here are two guys who are just incredibly enamored with the process of recording. What's it like for you? There you are in front of such a specimen of 70 year, a 70 year old piece of tape. Well, it's not something I take lightly. I like to describe the feeling as electricity going through me because it's almost like holding the Holy Grail. You're holding the original tape that was there 70 years ago at the session and tens of millions of people have enjoyed the music on that 10 inch reel in the past 70 years. And there it is. That's it. That's the original. 
You know, that's like finding a hieroglyphic or a long lost painting and holding the original artifact. And, and for me, that thrill never goes away, whether I'm handling a, a, an original session master from the 80s, a Billy Joel master, or whether I'm holding a Frank Sinatra master from, in this case, 1950, or some of the original session discs, the lacquer session discs from the 1940s. It's always a thrill to be able to, uh, to, to hear those things from the original elements and to handle them and also to learn from them because they are marked in a certain way. And you can get a lot of really great and accurate information from the outer sleeves and boxes and from what the engineers have written in the blank space on the disc. So it's always a fascinating journey to start a project like this and handle the original elements, which is what we always do. We don't go back to copies we try not to go back to digital files. We go back to the original recording elements in every case. You mentioned earlier a name that people to this day have all kinds of opinions on. I'm talking about Mitch Miller. Hmm. And you go into this. Uh, I should tell everybody that if they get this release, there's a really, really interesting essay that you wrote. What do you think, what was, what kind of influence, in your opinion, did Mitch Miller have on Sinatra? Well, Mitch Miller is both a fascinating and important figure in American popular music in mid-century America. And I speak of mid-century, 20th century, because he was classically trained at the Eastman School of Music and was a professional oboist. He played with the finest symphonies in the world throughout the 1930s and 40s. He was uh, the principal oboist of the CBS Radio Orchestra. And he was well known and revered in a very fine community of musicians and listeners who loved classical music. He played on a lot of Sinatra sessions in the 40s. He was one of the players in the orchestra, and he played on all kinds of sessions, including jazz sessions. He is one of the, the handful of musicians that is on the record, Charlie Parker and Strings, which was recorded in 1949. So to have Mitch Miller come to Columbia Records in 1950 as the A&R director was a little controversial, but it was also very important. He had started at Mercury Records as the A&R director, and he had a lot of success with Frankie Lane doing novelty tunes, things with sound effects like whips. Mule Train was his first big hit. And that was really what sold him to Columbia, which was a bigger label, had a bigger roster of artists, had a bigger foothold in the industry. And when he came to Columbia, he brought that pop novelty formula with him from Mercury because he had had tremendous success with it. As a matter of fact, we have to credit Mitch Miller with really turning uh, a floundering record business into a multi-million selling and multi-million dollar industry. And it all happened between 1949 and 1952. So Mitch comes to Columbia and starts working with the young artists who were recently signed to the label. Rosemary Clooney, Johnny Mathis, Tony Bennett. But he's making them record songs that were not the standards of the Sinatra generation. Uh, 
instead of songs by Cole Porter and Johnny Mercer and the Gershwins and, and Jerome Kern, he was recording pop novelty tunes. I mean, maybe the biggest example is that when Rosemary Clooney started at Columbia, one of her, it might've been her first big hit, I believe, Come On To My House was, was a record that sold over a million copies and, and was ubiquitous. You could hear it everywhere on radio. Everyone had it in their jukebox. If, if they had a jukebox in a business and people bought it by the millions. So it turned Rosemary Clooney into a household name almost overnight. On the other hand, the artists that had been on the label, like Frank Sinatra for many years, those who had cut their teeth with the American standards were really unhappy with Mitch. They thought that he was selling out. They didn't like the new novelty music. They thought it was uh, kind of banal and gimmicky and inane. And while Sinatra did some beautiful, beautiful things under Mitch Miller, in the time that Sinatra worked with him from 1950 to 52, he recorded a handful of really awful novelty tunes, the, the worst of which was Mama Will Bark with a, a chanteuse and very buxomy singer named Dagmar and Donald Bain, who howled like a dog. He did dog imitations. So, you know, for someone who had been singing All the Things You Are, and great classics like Fools Rush In, and uh, I've Got You Under My Skin on the radio in the 1940s, to, to, to be forced into using uh, these dog howling imitations and all kinds of gimmicky instrumental sounds was really something Frank didn't take to very well. So he and Mitch didn't get along. But in the beginning, in 1950, shortly after Mitch came to Columbia, he had this idea of pairing Frank Sinatra with George Saravo, who was a wonderful jazz arranger, both in his own right and for singers. George had scored a lot of the Doris Day singles, including its magic. So he had a wonderful way with uh, creating arrangements for singers. And Mitch said, Frank sings these great rhythm tunes on the radio and he sounds so good. Why shouldn't we do a whole album of them? Because we can now do 10 inch LPs. This was a brand new thing in 1950, you know, 10 inch vinyl albums with eight songs. And that's why it became Frank's first real concept album specifically for LP records. And I think the pairing was perfect. George Saravo wrote some, some wonderful arrangements in the jazz idiom for Frank. He had been working with Sinatra on his stage show anyway, so they were already friendly. Actually, Frank's work with George Saravo had gone back to the 40s when, when George was writing tempo tunes and arrangements for Frank's radio show. So he had this comfort level with Saravo. And the vocal issue with the laryngitis notwithstanding, this was really a very smooth project in terms of conception and recording. And it did very well when it first came out in 1950. Of course, within two years, Frank was on his way out of Columbia because of the continued tension with Mitch Miller. And as we know, he ended up at Capitol with Nelson Riddle and really reinvented himself and redefined what pop music was. What do you think this album, Sing and Dance with Frank Sinatra, says about the artist Frank Sinatra? Well, from 1940 on, Frank Sinatra was primarily known as a ballad singer, a crooner, someone who could express in the most eloquent and beautiful way 
lyrics that spoke of love. And of course, the instrumental backings were soft and warm, filled with strings. It was a very romantic period for him. So to bring him into the jazz context was a little different. And I think that was the most important thing because Mitch was right on the money. Frank could sing tempo songs and could sing in the jazz world as well as he could sing any ballad. And you can hear that on this record. And I think this is the recording where we can hear the precursor to what Frank would become in just a few years with Nelson at Capitol Records. And that image of the sophisticated swinger, which starts with this record, is really what Frank became noted for. That's the image that most people have in their mind when they think of Frank Sinatra, the guy with the snap brim hat and the loosened tie and the carefree, jaunty lyrics that he's tossing off with these beautiful, um, you know, sustained strings and jazz band behind him. I mean, it was just, it, he really created a whole genre within the pop vocal world in the 1950s with Nelson, but it starts with this record. And that's why I thought it was so important to bring it out again for its 70th anniversary and emphasize why it was important and how wonderful Frank sounds in this period when he's largely credited as having vocal problems. It's just not true. Well, as I was mentioning at the introduction, in addition to the vinyl version that's been reissued, there's this super audio CD and something that they're going to find on there is some alternate vocal takes, which are always fascinating to hear. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about those selections that are on the SACD. Absolutely. Well, you know, the wonderful thing about being charged as a caretaker of this music and of these recordings is that you really are a detective. You're an explorer. I like to say that you're almost like an anthropologist in a way and an archaeologist because you're always searching for something that may have survived from the original sessions. And, and a lot of times that goes missing for whatever reason. You know, when you talk about a record label like Columbia Records or RCA Records, where they have millions of assets and those assets have been stored and then moved to various places through the years, it's very easy for something to get misplaced, misfiled, misidentified. And when I started to think about this project, my first uh, task was to go back to the vault and find out exactly what we had from Frank Sinatra from this exact period. And lo and behold, I turned up both disc and tape sources in which I found previously unknown session recordings. And by that, I mean the instrumental backing tracks without the vocal. So we had a couple of reels that had the original instrumentals that were recorded in April of 1950. And then we had the master composite reel with the vocal takes that were added in November, October, November of 1950. And then we had some alternate takes where they're actually spinning the tape back, playing the, the instrumental multiple times. And Frank is doing his vocal so we can hear him doing a take, stopping, doing a take, stopping, going back, redoing it. 
And I thought, this is exactly what I want to explain to the listener. This is the history of this music. This technology was such, and it was brand new in 1950, that Frank Sinatra could go back and overdub over an existing instrumental track. And this was really a momentous thing. And I wanted to illustrate that audibly. So to find those reels was really a godsend because it allowed me to do that. The other thing is I had in my own collection of rare Sinatra recordings, um, a set of 10 lacquer discs from 1949, actually 1947 to 1949. And the 1949 session included the open microphone session for It All Depends on You, which is one of the tracks they used on Sing and Dance with Frank Sinatra. And it really is the most revealing example of how Frank Sinatra functioned as his own producer that has ever surfaced. With all of the session tapes we've ever heard, this is the most vivid and lifelike example. Frank is literally directing musicians to sit closer to the mic, to turn and face the wall, to get a reflected sound off the wall that bounces back into the mics instead of a very harsh and direct sound. I mean, this is an artist who was so on top of his craft that he not only chose the songs, not only worked with the arranger on the arrangement he wanted to hear, but on the recording date is directing the musicians where to sit and how to play. And, and he wants to get a certain sound. And that's remarkable. Almost no other artist, certainly no artist of Frank Sinatra's stature worked like that. They left all those tasks to a producer and the engineer. And here we have this open mic session with Frank directing every facet of it. And I've long wanted to bring that out. And this was yet another reason to really celebrate this recording on its 70th anniversary was to be able to include this open mic session material that is directly related to the sing and dance album. So we did that. We included a couple of Harry James tracks from 1951, right around the time of sing and dance where, you know, he's, he's blazing as a vocalist and, and it's just amazing. This is where you can really hear the, the ingredients that he's going to use with Nelson Riddle just a year and a half later at Capitol. And I also found the original session master tapes for those two Harry James recordings, whereas previously we've had to use copies in some cases with added reverb that makes it sound not so good and not so lifelike. Here you're going to hear it in all of its lifelike brilliance with its real color and its real texture, and it's just a wonderful thing. And then, of course, I was able to find and include some of those alternate takes, including some of that I did an instrumental background on one song, and then I have Frank doing multiple attempts at the vocal, and then we do an alternate vocal take. So I try to give the listener the original album on side one of the LP, all eight songs right in a row, as though you were listening to the 10-inch LP uninterrupted in 1950, and then on side two, a cornucopia of outtakes and session material and rarities that will be new to even the most diehard Sinatra fan. And I have to say, the the recording, as you called it, the open mic recording of It All Depends on You, it's really something to behold. We we have to say, it it, you know, you think that's the kind of, the, you use the word he was like uh, producing himself. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's it's amazing. And uh, Well, Paul, you know, I wrote a book 
called Sessions with Sinatra, Frank Sinatra and the Art of Recording. My inspiration to write that book, the idea came from listening to those session discs the very first time. And I got them, I bought them from uh, someone who had been friends with songwriter Alec Wilder, composer, songwriter, and arranger Alec Wilder, who figured into Frank Sinatra's life prominently because in 1945, Frank had conducted an album for Columbia of Alec Wilder compositions, which are kind of these offbeat, quirky, jazz, classical little pieces. And, and anyone who knows music and really appreciates music really understands Alec Wilder. He ended up writing songs like I'll Be Around, and he, he just was such a wonderful figure in American pop music in the 40s and 50s. And I think because of Alec's friendship with both Mitch Miller and Frank Sinatra, somehow uh, Alec ended up with this set of discs of Sinatra sessions, and they were in his personal collection for many years. And when he died, someone acquired them and then sold them. And I bought them from that person that got them from Alec. So the first time that I listened to that session, I said, this is what Frank Sinatra is. This is it. This, this is why he was a master. This is why he was the ultimate vocal craftsman, the ultimate musical craftsman. And I felt at that point that I had to somehow document that and make that into a story that explained just how Frank made his records. And I did that by doing a lot of firsthand interviews with the musicians and the songwriters and the arrangers and the producers and the recording engineers and so forth. And I, I came up with this book called Sessions with Sinatra. But if, if people like that book, and I get a lot of really nice comments on it, and it is a niche Sinatra book, it's not sensational, it's only about the music, um, this is where my inspiration came from. And I am delighted to be able to bring that to everyone and share it so that they can hear it for themselves. Well, you bringing up the songwriters in particular there, uh, amongst all these other people who contributed to this music being made, this album, I want to show the other side of it. You look through the titles there. And there are some real knockouts. This is always a difficult question for people who love music, but you've got everything from my blue heaven. It's only a paper moon when you're smiling. Is there one for you that you think, wow, this is just, this is special. <laughs> oh, I mean, they're all special for their own reason. I think the lead off track and by the way, we kept the original sequence on the album, of course, for the side one of the LP. The, it flows exactly as Sinatra intended it to flow when the 10-inch LP came out in 1950. I think track one, side one, Lover, is amazing. Uh, Frank is so, so ebullient. I mean, that's the only word I can think of. He's bouncy, he's bright, but every word is crisp and... It's a very um, uh, fast-paced arrangement, and he's right on top of the beat and the melody, and he's right in there. He's singing right in the pocket, and I love the instrumental interludes, too. There's some great piano in there, and it's so beautifully recorded. You know, 
my um, my friend Martin Malucci, who I brought in to be my second set of ears on this project. He was the associate producer on this. You know, he remarks about the sound of that piano, and it really is wonderful. So when you hear Frank singing, and and really it's an interplay between his vocal and the piano and the other instruments. You know, there's a great brass interlude, and, and it's just like a jam session is really what I'm trying to say. And and for that three minutes, you have this amazing really fast tempo jam session with Sinatra. And you feel like you're in a club somewhere at 2 a.m., you know, on a Friday night in Los Angeles. And Frank just happens to come in after a date. And, you know, there's a little jazz combo there and he starts singing. And this is probably what it sounded like when that happened. And I just am, am excited when I hear this and it's amazing. So that's one of them. And of course, for me, all of the bonus material really, you know, I, I, I selected all of the bonus material very carefully. There are certainly more things that I could have included. When you talk about making a vinyl LP, you're limited. I mean, I was limited to 22 minutes per side. Once you start to uh, go beyond 22 minutes aside for a vinyl LP, you literally have to cram the grooves closer together and that increases the chance for distortion and less dynamic range in terms of the sound. So, you know, I work very carefully as a producer with my engineers. So to give you an example, the reason that this sounds so good, and we've been getting some really nice feedback from the listeners that started to receive this from Impex Records, is that the sound is amazing. Well, there's a reason for that, because we pay very close attention to it. And as the producer, I feel it's my job to audition the original elements and then not change them, not recreate them, but translate them to a new medium and preserve them faithfully. So I wanted the LP to have all of the excitement and, and the warmth and the color and the tone of the original tapes. And you can only do that by working with the right people. So, and doing it the right way. So we did the LP all analog. There's no digital processing except for the two songs that came from disc, which we had to do a little bit of digital processing on, but then we brought it back into the analog domain and we EQ'd it and did everything analog. But um, we took the original master tape and ran it through all tube equipment of the highest caliber with the greatest engineer that I feel in terms of remastering and doing this kind of transfer work, uh, Matt Cavaluso. Actually, it's two engineers, Matt Cavaluso at Battery Studios, which is the Sony studio in New York, and Andreas Meyer, who is at Swan Studios in New York. And for years, I've worked with Andreas and Matt at Sony Music, and um, and we really were able to bring all of the nuance out. Even though it was an analog recording and we went to LP, you can hear all the subtleties of Frank's vocal, the diction, the crispness, and and the warmth. And that's really the key. We, we aimed to reproduce the exact tone of Frank's voice on that tape, which was exquisite, beautifully recorded. We wanted to bring that to the LP. For the SACD, which, by the way, is also a CD, it's called SACD Hybrid. So 
if you have an SACD player or um, a Sony PlayStation, you can play the high resolution files, the super audio files. There's another layer on it that contains the regular standard CD. So you could play this in your car or you could play it in your home theater. And even though it's mono, they are high resolution digital files. And we didn't skimp on that either. We made a high res digital transfer at the same time as we transferred and worked on the audio, the analog audio. So um, the sound on the two are slightly different. One is not better than the other. It's just that they're different. You have a full analog on the LP and you have a high resolution super audio CD digital version on the SACD. So, you know, and then of course, when you, when you talk about taking that master tape that you created and translating it to the grooves of a disc, again, we went to the very best. We went and mastered the disc and cut the disc master with Chris Bellman at Bernie Grunman Mastering in Hollywood. And I supervised that myself. A.B. Fawn, who owns Impex Records, who we partnered with for this anniversary release, was in the studio with us. Bob Donnelly from Impex Records was in the studio with us. These are the people on the Impex side that really know all of the ins and outs of mastering for LP. And um, together we made a great team. And I'm, I'm just blown away by what Impex did. And of course, because this type of project and, and all music really is not just um, uh, sonic it's tactile. You want to feel it. You know, when, when the beauty of LPs, as you and I grew up with them, is that you had something tangible. You could hold it. You could open the gatefold sleeve and read things and enjoy the, the, the pleasure of taking the disc out, the ritual of taking the disc and putting it on the turntable. And then for me, the excitement and, and ceaseless wonder of how the hell does this stylus sitting in that little groove, give me this amazing sound. It's just like an incredible thing. Even though I've been doing this for 56 years, listening to records since I was one year old, it still amazes me that this process even works. So, you know, we needed something that was visually stunning. And Impex's team has one of the greatest designers in the world, Robert Sliger. And he created what I think is the most visually stunning package I've ever worked on. And I've worked on dozens of them through the years. Um, it's bright, it's glossy. The booklet that he created and set my liner notes and photos and memorabilia in is just, just beautiful. It's, it's luxe all the way. So, you know, I think people are getting an incredible value for their dollar from start to finish. From the moment they, they open the box and look at that cover and it pops and they say, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. And uh, of course, the vinyl is 180 gram heavyweight vinyl, and I really think it sounds amazing, even though it's mono. And 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 RTI, by the way, did our pressing. Rick Hashimoto and his team at Record Technology in Los Angeles did a spectacular job of creating an ultra quiet pressing for us. I mean, I'm I'm just thrilled about this. I really am. This this I must say, of all my projects that I've worked on, is really my favorite because it's it's my first full fledged analog vinyl LP. In all the years I've been doing this, most of what I've done is CD. And uh, the couple times that I did work for LP ended up being digital files going to LP. This is really the real deal for me. So I'm really quite proud of it. Well, hats off to all of you guys, because it really is. It's, it's marvelous. And 
it, it's this music is so alive. That's that's what I feel when I listen to it. And you know, I have to say, when I received the package uh, that this this release came in, it was kind of cryptic. I didn't, I wasn't sure exactly what it was, but then, you know, from the beginning, before I even played it, you know, it's just kind of. <gasps> well, I have to tell you that that says a lot because you know the music and you're a discriminating audiophile and you see a lot of LPs and, you know, truth be told, I do this for the love of it because I love music, specifically this music in terms of production. I have been fortunate for the last 26 years to have a very small part in keeping the Sinatra legacy alive at Columbia Legacy and RCA Victor Legacy, which is part of Sony Music Legacy Recordings. But I have to tell you, um, whenever I buy any vinyl LP, especially if I'm buying something that is specifically created for the audiophile market, for the person who really appreciates a well-made, well-crafted recording and has a, a high-end system that can appreciate it. This is exactly what I want. And I said this when I was writing my book. I had to write the Sinatra book I wanted to read. And in this case, I had to create and supervise the, the the manufacturing and creation of the Sinatra sing and dance that I wanted to hear. And uh, I wish every record, Sinatra and otherwise, that rolled off a, a, you know, a record pressing plant had the same high quality sound and feel and craftsmanship that this does. And that really is not uh, a testament to me. It's a testament to the team at Impex Records, A.B. Fon, Bob Bance, Bob Donnelly, uh, Robert Sliger, and then, of course, the folks that they use, whether it's Kevin Gray or Chris Bellman or Bernie Grumman himself to do the mastering and the cutting of the LP. Every person in the chain, every step of the way is the highest quality, the greatest attention to detail at every level. And there's a big difference. You can go to Borders or you can go online and buy any record, Sinatra or otherwise, from any of the major labels and you put it on, it's okay. Most of them are made from digital files, unfortunately. That's just the way the industry is today. You know, they don't, they don't source from analog because it's a lot more expensive. But, you know, the quality isn't always there. There's ticks and pops, and, and maybe the record is warped, and maybe it's not 180-gram vinyl. Maybe the sound is not exactly what it should be because the engineer, you know, is as technically adept as they might be in today's world, you know, they might be 27 or 30 years old and not understand the whole analog rec recording chain and the technology. So, you know, here, I like to say that the Impex imprint is your stamp and seal of approval. And, and I brought this project from Columbia to Impex specifically because I loved their product. I loved buying and listening to their uh, classical LPs that they were doing, the RCA Living Stereo, and uh, and some of the jazz LPs that they were licensing from us. And, and I would sit in the studio with my engineer, Andreas Meyer, who had been working with them on the classical things. And I would marvel and I would say, this is, it sounds the way analog should sound. God, I wish I could do a Sinatra record with Impex. And when I had the opportunity, you know, the door opened a little bit, I kicked it open and I was able to push and convince uh, my buddies at Columbia Records at Legacy Recordings that we should do this and do it with impacts. And I'm really, really pleased. And I think 
uh, any of your listeners that buy any Impex product, whether it's our Sinatra album, a classical record, uh, any of the great jazz things they've been doing, uh, they've been doing some Patricia Barber and Jennifer Warrens, they're going to be knocked out. They're just incredible. And they are at impexrecords.com, correct? Yes. And you can also buy this, uh, or, or not exclusive, but our main distributor for both the LP and the SACD is elusivedisc.com. So Elusive Disc uh, carries all audiophile product, and they're, they're a great uh, distributor. So you could get it at elusivedisc.com. You can go to impexrecords.com. You know, I, I think people are really going to be happy. And I, I guess the upshot of all this, Paul, the end result is this is the kind of stuff that makes record collecting and listening to records, not CDs, but records fun. It, 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 this is why collectors do what they do and why there's an excitement to it. Because, you know, somebody really cared enough about this 70-year-old tape and this 70-year-old album to make it special and give it the spotlight it deserves. That's really it. You know, and, and I, I like to think and I hope that we achieved our, our goal. We just want to pay attention to and fulfill the mandate of the creators. So if we can give you a product that reflects the integrity of what Frank Sinatra crafted back in 1950, then we've done our job as caretakers of the music. Hmm. Well, being that you have gotten so close to these recordings and you've been able to really, really take a look at this album, Sing and Dance with Frank Sinatra. If you had some way, if you could ask Frank Sinatra any question about this album, what would you ask him? Definitely two things come to mind. The first is, did you sit down yourself, which we know he did later at Capitol Records, and put all the songs together in the order that you wanted them in because they flow in a very natural order. And we know that the hallmark of his amazing concept albums that he did at Capitol with Nelson Riddle and Gordon Jenkins and Billy May, Frank would actually sit down and juggle the songs around and create a story, create an arc musically with each song. I would love to know from him whether he did that as early as 1950 with Sing and Dance, or did he leave that to Mitch Miller and the A&R people? The other question I would ask him is, he used George Saravo for a number of things throughout the 1940s, and then for this project in 1950, and at the same time, between 1949 and 1952, George basically was his music director and arranger for his stage shows. And at that time, the stage shows were at the Copa in New York and Bill Miller's Riviera and different clubs around the country. And I'm wondering, A, what is it that really attracted you to George's style? And B, why didn't you continue to use George later in your career? Because George ended up staying in the music field. He was the arranger that record uh, that arranged and recorded Who Can I Turn To with Tony Bennett, that beautiful string arrangement. And that whole album was orchestrated by George Saravo. He worked with Doris Day and Jimmy Roselli in the 60s and 70s. So George stayed in the music business, but Frank never really worked with him after that. Uh, a little known secret is that Frank's first Capitol album, Songs for Young Lovers, 
is a 10 inch LP that he recorded at Capitol in 1953. And all of those arrangements, except one, were by George Saravo. So if anyone doubts that George Saravo could have written beautifully, as beautifully as anyone else for Frank Sinatra, all they need to do is listen to My Funny Valentine and those great songs, uh, Little Girl Blue, all those great songs that are on Songs for Young Lovers. The only song out of the eight on that Capitol record that was scored by Nelson Riddle was Like Someone in Love. And you can hear the difference. You can hear that it's a little different. It's a different style. But George wrote beautiful charts. And I think I'd want to know from Frank, did you ever think of bringing George back in the mid-60s? You know, after you heard Who Can I Turn To by turn by Tony Bennett, did you ever say, maybe I should turn to George Saravo and do an album with him? You know, that those would be the two questions I would ask him. Interesting stuff. So, for anybody who wants to get in contact with you or find out more about Charles Granada, it's charleslgranada.com, correct? That's correct. The best way to do it is go to chuckgranada.com. Any of my names, Charles L., Charles, Chuck, will bring you to my website. I like to tell people they can email me at chuckgranada at gmail. So that's C-H-U-C-K-G-R-A-N-A-T-A, Granata. Chuck Granata at Gmail, or they can just go to my website, which is chuckgranata.com. Well, it's been a great pleasure to have you on here and to talk about this album, Sing and Dance with Frank Sinatra. I always like to say that Frank Sinatra is the king of recording artists, and you really, uh, I believe you've, you, you would have done him proud with this beautiful recording. Well, thank you, Paul. Those words are especially meaningful coming from you, for sure. And um, maybe we should go out with one of the songs from this album. It's uh, one of my favorites because this was the most challenging in a way. And it's not from the Sing and Dance sessions, so it's, it's one of the bonus tracks. But when we were going through the archive, uh, we discovered that another song that was laid down in April the instrumental was laid down in April, where Frank came back later and overdubbed the vocal was American Beauty Rose, which is a wonderful up-tempo recording with a Dixieland band arrangement by Norton by Norman Layden. And when we went back to the tapes, I found the original composite master of the instrumental backing and the vocal, and I found just the instrumental version of American Beauty, Beauty Rose without the vocal. That was on the tape, the, the magnetic tape thing. So remember I told the audience that when these were recorded, Columbia was transitioning from disc to tape, and they recorded all these sessions on both. They had a set of discs running to get it on 16-inch lacquer disc at the same time as they ran the tape machines. So we do have some overlap. Well, I could not find any alternate takes on a vocal from American Beauty Rose that were on magnetic tape. I found the instrumental only, and I found the one vocal master composite. That was it. But when I went back to the cache of disc recordings we have in the vault, I found about 13 different takes, some of them incomplete, of American Beauty Rose with the vocal. So what I did is I, I uh, transferred all of them, I took them home. I listened to them a lot. 
I made a lot of comparisons and a lot of notes. And I discovered, even though there's absolutely no change in the instrumental. So, you know, the instrumental was, was committed and that was it. Frank had to see, sing to the same instrumental every time he did a take. But even though that was confining, there were certain points where he sang a word a little differently or used a different inflection, maybe changed key. And I said, okay, let me listen and let me narrow this down to the significant differences that someone who really knows this song, if they're listening to it and they hear this difference, they're going to go, wait a minute, this isn't what I'm normally accustomed to listening to. And I narrowed it down to three different takes. And what I did is in my home studio, I edited those three takes together and I created what I call a composite alternate take. You'll never know where I edited the takes together, but I did edit the, the, the song together so that the three different parts that are different than the master take that everyone's accustomed to are in this new composite alternate take. And I think it's fun. It's such a great arrangement. And I wish Frank had done a whole album with Norman Layden at that time, because it's really a great forum for him. He really wouldn't go back to that Dixieland sound until he did the film, The Joker is Wild, where Nelson Riddle did um, at sundown for him. And if I could be with you one hour tonight in the 1920s Dixieland style. So this really is a treat, and I hope people enjoy the subtle differences that they're going to hear in this composite alternate I created of American Beauty Rose. All there right. There we go. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Charles. You're welcome, Paul. And by the way, you're my friend. You can always call me Chuck. <laughs> All okay? right. Absolutely. Hey, great being with you, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and keep doing what you're doing. You got it. Got to keep documenting these great people. I love the Charlie Pride shows, man. Oh, thank great you. Stuff. Thank you. He's one of the guys I wish they had gotten to. I really had no reason. And uh, I, sh I wish I had done it just for the, for the historical aspect, you know? What yeah. Great. yeah. He, he was a, oh, gosh. You know, when you think about people that, and you use the word sweet. Yes. That's it. You can tell. From the interview and from his approach to music, he's just had so much heart and soul. And I've always loved his recordings. I know he, he, he never, to me, got the recognition and the due in later years that he should have gotten. He should be considered, you know, a real essential pioneer in country music up there with Eddie Arnold and Hank Snow and Chet Atkins. And he never really got that same recognition, I feel. But what a wonderful singer and what a wonderful guy. Agreed. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Goodbye.